Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Really, it's so good to have you here with us. If you have not been to Christ the King before, we particularly want you to know that you are welcome here. We are so glad to have you joining us. Uh, no matter really where you are on the spiritual spectrum of things, this is a place where we want you to feel like you can uh, work out what you believe the Bible says and uh, bring all your, all your questions, maybe your skepticism, and, and bring it to God's word and see what he has to say for us. Um, before I read this psalm, we're going to be in Psalm 11 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a, a Bible, that black Bible in front of you is our gift to you. Please take that home with you. Um, but if you turn in, in to page 452 of that black Bible, you'll find Psalm 11, which is where we're going to be. I uh, was driving in my car not too long ago, and as I was driving, I noticed that every time I turned my steering wheel, I heard this squeaking happening in my car. And now I'm half deaf, so echolocation is not a strength of mine, okay? I, kid, I was like, I'm looking around, where is this squeaking happening? I'm turning every time I turn, squeak, squeak, squeak. And then I look in my rearview mirror and remembered that I had a four-year-old in the backseat of the car. And in his lap was his little wooden steering wheel that <laughs> he likes to have with him whenever we drive. And every time I turned, he turned. And I thought to myself, he, he, he's obsessed with cars. And he, he really thinks that he's driving this car right now. That's why he always has a steering wheel in his lap. He thinks he's driving. And that's how a lot of us go through life. Thinking that we're the ones who are steering. Clay kind of talked about that earlier. That we feel like we're the, kind of the masters of our own fate. But here's the thing, it would be the least loving thing possible for me to look at my four-year-old and say, hey, I see that you are interested in driving. Why don't you take the steering wheel, right? That would be the worst thing that I could do for him as his loving father. Psalm 11 is a psalm in which David is remembering who is actually in control and we can see the deep comfort that for someone who is in crisis or in a moment of chaos, the deep comfort that we can have knowing that it's actually not us steering, but that it's God. So let's look at Psalm 11 together. To the choir master of David, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your word. We pray that you would feed us now on it. 
Uh, We pray that your spirit would be at work in our midst. You know each of our stories, uh, each person in this room, you know where we are. Some of us come this morning um, apathetic or just tired or bored or stressed. Some of us come skeptical or cynical um, or angry or grieved or weary. Lord, wherever we are, we pray that you would meet us now in your word, that your spirit would be at work among us doing what uh, I certainly cannot and what only you can do, which is to be at work in the hearts of man. And so we pray that you would do that now by the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So some of you may uh, be familiar with a family, uh, the Ten Boom family. They were a family that lived really a, a pretty quiet life in Harlem, uh, Netherlands in the early 20th century. But their, their life forever changed in May of 1940 when Nazis invaded and began their occupation of Holland. And the Ten Boom family, who were believers, were faced with this dilemma. What do we do? Do we leave the country? Do we flee all the injustice that's about to ensue? all the wrong that's about to happen to our neighbors, do we flee and run away from it? Or should we just put our heads down and kind of accept what is about to happen? Do we we flee by not doing anything? Or, Or do we do something about all the injustice that's about to happen around us? Do we engage with what is happening, and if, if we are to do something, how can we possibly find the courage to do something? And friends, this is the, the same kind of question that David is facing in Psalm 11, and that all of us face at different points in our lives. How do we find the courage to face uncertainty and fear? How do we find security and peace in the midst of a world that's very chaotic, There's, there's ways that we respond to threats. Scientists and psychologists have even talked about, there's, there's these very common categories that our response to threats fit under. And I, kind of, I wanna kind of use some of those categories to organize the sermon this morning. One, flight. The second, fight. I'm just gonna look at those two. There's, other, there's like freeze and fawn that have recently been added apparently. I'm telling you, whoever's doing this research is a Presbyterian minister because they're rocking the alliteration. But we're gonna look at flight and fight and then I'm gonna add one more a bit of alliteration. The third point will be faith, okay? Flight, fight, and then faith. So first, flight. What do you do when the Lord puts you in harm's way? Well, David is being advised here in verses one through three. You can see there's a quotation that begins at the end of verse one. And David is, is asking a question of this person who begins this quote at the end of verse one. He says, how can you say to my soul, quote, here's his advice that he's getting, flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fired, they've fired arrows to... Um, fitted arrows to their string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? These are David's advisors. 
And David's advisors are saying, listen, David, there is a coup coming. There are people who are working in the shadows, who are working in the dark, and they're coming for you. And you don't, there's nothing that you can do about it. You need to leave. You need to flee. This is the same question that the tin booms face. What do we do when the Lord puts us in harm's way? This is the question that David is facing. This is the question that we face. And for many of us, the natural reaction, the biological reaction, you could even say, is flee. Head to the mountains. That's what David is being instructed and advised to do here. And here's the thing. If you're familiar with David's story, you know that there's times that he does flee. If you just flip through First and Second Samuel, which is where we find David's story, and even just look at some of the headings that are about David, the headings above those passages, you'll see stuff like David flees Saul. David flees Saul again and again. David flees Absalom, his, his own son. David is fleeing his enemies all throughout his story. But here David is being told to flee and he won't. He is refusing to flee. Because in this instance, for David to flee, it would be for him to leave his calling as king. For him to stop doing what God has called him to do and to flee to the mountain. And the mountain is a tempting place to flee because for him it is a place of security. And here, here's the deal, the deal for all of us. We are prone to fleeing towards places that we think will give us security. We will flee to whomever or wherever we think that there is security. And so my, my question for you maybe to consider for yourself is where do you flee when fear arises? Maybe even like a little bit of anxiety spikes. Where do you want to go? Imagine with me that if you're sitting in a doctor's waiting room and there's 10 people in that doctor's waiting room. In your mind's eye, as you imagine that room, what are like eight of those people doing in the waiting room? Right? Feeling anxious? What's gonna happen? Maybe you're a little bored too but I'm feeling anxious, what's happening in this, in this doctor's appointment? I don't wanna be here, where do I go? A little bit of distraction, a little bit of comfort on my phone. There's a reason that phones are also called adult pacifiers, right? We, we grab our phones, a little bit of distraction, I'm gonna flee from this feeling for just a moment. Where do you flee for security? For some of us, it's our jobs. Maybe your job is a place where you feel like you're actually in a little bit of control. Maybe at home it doesn't feel like you're ever in control, but your job feels like I've got a little bit of control and agency over this. And so when you feel anxious, you run to that place. Or, or maybe, maybe it's your bank account. Maybe when you feel anxious, you're like, I'm just gonna check my balance real quick. You find yourself checking your bank account balance quick, a, a lot, or maybe you're like, no, actually that gives me anxiety. Where do you flee? Where do you look to to give you security? For some of us, it's food. 
and the way that we control our intake or, or don't control our intake and just look to it for comfort, whether it's undereating or overeating, we can look to food to give us comfort and security in, in, a, in a time and moments when, when things feel chaotic. I, I'm, I'm suspicious that for many of us, it's alcohol. Not just enjoying alcohol, but over imbibing an alcohol as a way to find security and escape. It's, it's probably not happenstance that liquor store sales went through the roof during the pandemic. Where do you go when there's a crisis? David is in a crisis. Where do you go when there's a crisis, when things feel unstable? It's probably not happenstance that gun sales, which had been mostly flat for a few years, went up 64% in 2020. Where do you look for security when there's a crisis? Where's the mountain that you flee? Now look, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with money or with owning a firearm or with alcohol or with food or with your job. But all of those, every single one of those, if you look to it to be your refuge, it will fail you. Because each of those are ways in which we are looking to take care of ourselves. We're, we're really kind of taking our little squeaky wooden wheel and trying to steer our lives with them and flee from whatever it is that we think is coming from us and to steer away from it. And it can't give us ultimate refuge. Where do you flee? The verse uh, that comes after this, after this description of the foundations of righteousness being destroyed, the verse after this begins talking about God testing us. Verses four and five, the Lord tests the children of man. He, he tests not just the people who are wicked and evil, people who don't believe in him, he tests even, David says, the righteous. He tests all people. I want you to think about what, what do tests do? Tests, tests can actually be a really helpful thing sometimes, even though that's, maybe, maybe you're like, that's what actually is causing me anxiety that I wanna flee from, right, is tests. Tests can actually be a grace because they help us assess where we are with something. It was a grace for me to take my first driving test. Notice that I said first driving test when I was 16 because I had to take a couple driving tests. Didn't pass that first one. My mom who'd been telling me for a while that I was a bit absent-minded as a driver don't smile too much, Chrissy, at that statement. Um, but my, my mom had been telling me I was a little bit of an absent-minded driver, finally was able to drive that point home when I failed the test. When the driving instructor told me to change lanes when I had the opportunity, and so I just immediately changed lane with the car right next to me. Failed the test. She said, just drive back. <laughs> 
But when you fail a test, it helps you understand where you are. And for many of us, when a trial arises, when there's a crisis, when, when chaos is ensuing, we can fail that. It's, it's a test. It's a test and we can fail it. But in that failure, we see, okay, that's actually the mountain that I'm running to. That's the refuge that I, I am looking to. Some other refuge. And if the Lord were to give me over to that refuge, it would be my doom. And so it's a grace that I experience the failure of that test. Does that make sense? God tests his people. The mountain, the mountain that we are tempted to run to is it's, it's a place that can feel so secure, but it's also a lonely place. It's a place of seclusion. It's an impersonal place. No one is looking to take care of you. You must take care of yourself. But there is a better refuge that David speaks of. It's the refuge of the Lord. So rather than having this natural reaction of fleeing, David begins this psalm speaking of his faith of the one to whom he is going to flee. David is going to flee somewhere, but he's going to flee to, verse one, in the Lord I take refuge. David believes that the place where there is security is the Lord. Remember, you're always going to flee where you think there's security. David believes that real true security is found only in the Lord. And so he's going to flee to the Lord and take refuge in him. Why? Well, because of what David says in verse four. It's his response to his advisors who are telling him, you've got to get out of here. The foundations have been destroyed. What, are you, what can you do? Even if you were completely righteous, David, what can you do? David is not going to flee because of what he says in verse four. Two things. The Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. David is saying, I am going to flee to a different mountain. The mountain that has the temple of the Lord on it, Mount Zion. David is going to flee to the temple. Now there's, there's two things that I want you to see here. With, it's, it's God's, both his nearness and his grandness, or we could say his, his eminence and his transcendence that David is describing here. First, it's his nearness, his eminence, that the Lord is in his temple. He's in a place where he has come to dwell among his people. God has made himself accessible to his people. God has drawn near to them because he cares. We need to know that and to hear that during times of crisis and chaos when it feels like, it maybe feels like the Lord has forgotten you. He's actually very near. God, David is saying, there's people who are coming for me. There's people who want to kill me. There's people who do not like me. There's people who want to take me down, but the Lord is near to me. He's in his temple. But not only is he near, his throne is in heaven. Not only does the Lord comfort me, but he's also so big and so transcendent and so grand that he 
can do something about this situation if he wills. God is sovereign over all things. He's in control over all things. So why would I run away? Whatever God wants to have happen to me will happen to me. Whatever God ordains for my life is right. And so David's like, I'm not running. Oh, how I want this. Oh, how I want this truth to really inform the way you and I live our lives, friends. To not live in fear, to not wring our hands at this next political election cycle, afraid of what might happen, but to believe that the Lord is in his temple and that his throne is in heaven. So we don't have to live in fear about what is going to happen in this world because whatever happens, it will be what he has ordained. And this truth is the truth that has comforted Christian men and women throughout the ages who have, who have spoken truth to power, who have not fled in the face of death itself but who have remained faithful and hopeful in the midst of chaos and crisis. David is told that he should flee, but he believes that the Lord is at work. And maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't feel, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like the Lord is in his throne. It feels like my life is chaotic. I'm, I'm, I'm in pain, I'm hurting. But we have to remember friends, for, well first I want you to know that God is near. He cares about that, he's in his temple. He's drawn near. But secondly, because he is over all things, because he stands outside of time, his perspective is very different from ours because of his relationship to time. And we can have great trust and hope in that, that he's actually working for our good, even though it doesn't look like it. I just, just think about, if you took someone from David's time, 1000 BC, that's when David was alive. You took someone from David's time, you brought them to the future and you said, hey, I'm gonna take you I'm gonna take you to the hospital and let you see something that we call heart surgery. If that person who has no concept of heart surgery, has never seen it before, walks in, they see a heart surgery going on, what would they think heart surgery is? Like the worst, most barbaric thing ever. Look at this terrible thing that's happening to this person. What does the person who's having heart surgery think heart surgery is? Life-saving. They've walked in humbly to the doctor and said, I can't fix this myself. I need you to fix it. And the doctor says, I will, but it's hard. And it doesn't always look easy. Especially to somebody who has a different perspective of time and, and where they're coming from. And friends, for the Christian, what David is having his hope in here is that there will be a day a thousand years in the future where I will look back on what the Lord was doing when it felt like heart surgery, when it felt like everything was chaotic and a mess 
and I was on the table and I can look back and say, the Lord was being good to me. He was not out of control. He was on his throne. He was in his temple. The Lord was being good to me. So I don't have to flee and I don't have to fight. You would expect David's natural reaction to this, especially if you knew David, you would expect that he would hear this and want to fight somebody. <laughs> David was a warrior. He, very well known for killing this guy named Goliath, this great Philistine warrior. David heroically slays the giant Goliath. But also when, when David was coming into town, the, the people would sing about him and they would sing about the first king of Israel, Saul, and they would sing, Saul killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David was a renowned warrior. And so you can imagine this renowned warrior being told there is a political crisis going on and there are people who are coming for you and him just rolling up his sleeves and saying, all right, who wants it? Let's go. But David, David doesn't move towards fighting because again, he believes his hope is that God is the one who ultimately will execute justice. Did you see what he says in verse six? He describes the vengeance that belongs not to himself, but to the Lord. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So David, once again, is demonstrating the humility that vengeance doesn't belong to him, it belongs to the Lord. It's not my job to take control of this situation and to fight, I don't need to become, I don't need, I don't need to fight the culture right now of what's going on and like how the foundations are being destroyed in my own kingdom, I don't need to launch some big political move. I am going to trust that the Lord is at work and that he will have vengeance. How do you get that sort of humility? First, you get it by seeing that, that you and I also deserve what's described in verse six. That you and I are the wicked ones. The ones who deserve the cup of God's wrath that is described in verse six, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. Later in the Psalms, we, we will read that there's no one who's righteous. There's no one who does good, not even one. No one seeks after God. And when we, when we see that the problem with the world starts with like us and our sin, and when we see that the Lord has actually been gracious to sinners like us, it will make us gracious to others. It will make us not want to fight them. You remember you remember the, the parable Jesus tells about the unmerciful servant, this servant who owed 60 million days wages to his master and the master forgives that servant. And then what does that servant do? That servant who doesn't understand the grace and forgiveness that's been poured out on him. What does he do? He turns around and in verse 27, Jesus says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him not 600 million days wages, 100 days wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. This is a man who wants to fight, 
who wants to fight for himself, to find vengeance for himself, to get what he wants. If you don't understand your debt before God, you'll try to settle scores yourself. You'll try to fight for yourself. You'll try to fight for your own security. But instead, instead of fleeing, instead of fighting, we can have faith. Believing that God is in control, that he is just. But you know what? Believing that God's in control and that he's just, that in and of itself won't necessarily make you flee to him for security. But you know what will? Seeing that his heart is for you. That not only is he just and not only is he powerful, but he is so good and he loves you. That he has demonstrated himself to be entirely trustworthy. The Ten Booms knew this. The Ten Boom family, they worked to hide Jews and to help them escape Holland. It's estimated that they rescued over 800 people. But in February 28th, 1944, the Ten Boom family was betrayed by someone. Corey Ten Boom, who later wrote about their experience in her book, Hiding, The Hiding Place, she and her sister Betsy were taken to Ravensbrook, a notorious concentration camp, where once a week the soldiers would do what they called a health inspection, where they stripped the women, had them walk by, jeered them, poked them, prodded and groped them, one day, while that was happening, while Corey heard her sister Betsy weeping in front of her over the shame, Corey remembered that it was a Friday. And she whispered to her sister who was in front of her, Betsy, they took his clothes too. You see, the reason that we can trust a God a God like the Lord is because not only is he in control of all things, not only will he bring justice, but he has demonstrated himself to be so committed to our salvation that he steps into our shame and our pain and into the crisis of this world so that any who would look to him so that any wicked person who deserves his cup of wrath, Jesus will drink it for them. That's what he says the night before he goes to the cross. Father, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. But then Jesus willingly submits to receiving the cup of God's wrath. So that any who would look to him, to any who would find their refuge in the Lord Jesus, no matter how wicked they have been, any who looks to Jesus for refuge will receive gracious salvation. Not because of what they've done, but because of what he has done. Not because of our great faithfulness, but because great is thy faithfulness, Thomas Chisholm wrote. Thomas Chisholm, who wanted to be a pastor, got to be a pastor for one year, and then he became very sick. He had to leave. Go home, he became a very poor man. A very poor man who 12 years later wrote, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. 
God's faithfulness is great. So great that any who would find refuge in him, do you know what? Do you know what David says at the end of the psalm? It's so good. We, we can almost not bear it that one day we will see him face to face. You can barely look in the face of another human being who bears God's image. It's so glorious. Another person's face. To look eye to eye with somebody for just a moment, you have to look away. It's like looking in the sun. You can't do it for very long. One day, for all who are in Christ, who have found their refuge in him, you will see God in all of his full glory, face to face. And because of the work of Jesus, that face will be smiling at you. And it smiles over you now. And you are invited to rest in that in the midst of a chaotic world. To not flee in fear. To not fight for yourself, but to know that there's a God who has fought for you and who loves you and has sent his son to redeem you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Thanks that... For our sake, you made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.